Now, please welcome Mr. Andrew Hudson, pastor, as he continues our series on Ruth. Good to be with you guys. How are you? Good. Good. Well, hey, I'm gonna, just going to kind of jump right into it today. Um, last weekend, we started a new series we're calling Redeeming Love, and we're taking a look at the Old Testament book of Ruth. Um, and if you missed last weekend, I would highly encourage you to grab a CD in the lobby on the way out. They're free or download the podcast or listen to the podcast sometime this week. Heather gave an excellent talk on the first chapter of Ruth, but it's really going to be important, I think, over the next number of weeks that you kind of don't miss anything in this series because they really does kind of build on each other. In a lot of ways, it's one giant sermon spread out of a number of weeks because we're just kind of talking about different parts of the same story. Um, but I'll kind of summarize it up a little bit about what Heather talked about last week uh, in case you weren't here. But the book of Ruth is a really, really well-written story. I mean, it really is a great work of ancient literature. And last weekend, we learned that the story starts off in very dramatic fashion. It starts off where we are introduced to this man named Elimelech. And he decides, Elimelech decides to take his wife, Naomi, and his two sons and leave their home they live in a little town called Bethlehem. You may have heard of that town before. They live in a little town in Bethlehem, and they leave their homeland during a time of famine. And they go off to a foreign country, the country of Moab. And the country of Moab and Israel had a kind of a hated, warring history together with the Hebrew people. And Elimelech and Naomi's sons, uh, and they take their sons and they end up going and they stay there for a while long enough that the sons end up marrying local Moabite women. And it seems like they are going to plant roots there. But pretty quickly, uh, early on in the story, all the men dramatically kind of die very quickly. And so Naomi is left with these two daughter-in-laws and living in a culture and a time period that was very male-dominant and providing financially. And she doesn't know what to do and she's, she's she has no, no way of taking care of herself financially, and so she decides the best thing to do is, I'm going to go back home. I'm going to go back home and hope there's some, someone there, some, something there still for me. So she decides to go back to Bethlehem, and one of her daughter-in-laws by the name of Ruth, who the book is named after, in a very unexpected act and, and of extreme loyalty and kindness, vows to go with her, vows to go with her and live with her every day of the rest of her life and to take care of her. It's really kind of a powerful moment in chapter one. But at the end of chapter one, they arrive in Bethlehem and they're poor and they're homeless and husbandless, but they arrive at just the time of the barley harvest season. And so there's this glimmer of kind of hope of something might be hopeful on the horizon. And that's where chapter two starts off. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna pray and then we'll dig into chapter two. So God, I just thank you for this story, this book of Ruth that we're gonna be spending the next couple weeks looking at, and, and it really is a story of your redeeming love, of your redeeming love for all of us and for all of humanity. And as we explore this chapter today, I just pray, Lord, that your spirit would speak straight to us, straight to our hearts, that we would, we would discover where we're in this story, too, and what you're speaking and doing through it. And when we leave um, today close, feeling closer and sensing you closer to us than maybe when we came. So we just pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you have a Bible and you want to open to Ruth chapter 2 or on your phone, Bible app, or we're, we'll have them on the screens as well. But, uh, but we're going to kind of go through the whole chapter today, which is no short task, um, but we'll, we're going to keep it moving. 
Um, but I just don't want to miss anything in the story. I just think it's such a good story. I don't want to miss any part where we feel like um, we've neglected something. So Ruth, uh, chapter 2, starting off in verse 1, it says this. Now, Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So first off, the writer does something interesting here. He kind of narrates a little bit, or he tells us some background information that Ruth doesn't know yet. And Naomi seems to have forgotten. And they, he basically, she, the author introduces this new character, this by a man by the name of Boaz that we're going to meet here in a second. But for now, it's kind of a secret between the audience and the author here. But Ruth, in this culture, basically has three options. Three options of getting food, of, of taking care of her and herself and Naomi. And um, the first one is that if she had something to trade or sell, she could do that. She could barter something that she'd made or had, but we know from chapter one that they were really struggling, that they didn't really have anything, that they were you know, very broke, and so that's probably not an option for her. The only option maybe is that she could even consider would be selling her own body in prostitution, but, but Ruth isn't gonna do that. She's a new follower of God, and she knows that that would be wrong, and so she doesn't go that route. Her second option is that she can beg, she can panhandle on the street. She can, she can beg, but that would be humiliating and wouldn't probably bring very much in. So her third option, and this is the option she decides to do, is, is to go gleaning, which means nothing to us, I know. But to go gleaning was this idea of, of during the harvest season that we could, she could go behind the harvesters and gather up any scraps of grain that may have fallen behind or been left behind. And... Um, and Ruth, in her amazing strength and full of faith, that she will find someone who has, will have favor on her and be generous to her, decides to go and do that. And not everyone uh, might be so kind to her, especially being a Moabite woman, a foreigner who had, had, they had a bad past with Israel. But gleaning grain was essentially the Hebrew welfare system of the time. And according to the Old Testament law, Leviticus 19, 9, and 10 says this, when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. And then another part in the Old Testament law, it says this in Deuteronomy 24, 19. It says, when you are harvesting in your field, and you overlook a sheave, do not go back and get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, so the Lord your God may bless you in the work of your, all the work of your hands. Now, at the time of the judges, which is when Ruth is taking place, there was no monarchy yet. There was no king. There was no national leadership or any, any group of people overseeing the, like a, a redistribution of resources, but yet God had a plan. God had a plan. He had a plan of how he was going to take care of his people from the beginning. And the way he was going to do that was he was going to make sure that those who had more were generous to those who had less. And a landowner who may have had a lot of resources and land, if they were willing to follow the Old Testament law, which at the time of the judges, not everybody was doing, but if they were, they were supposed to leave the edges of the field and not 
harvest all the grain, but to leave the edges of the field for, for the poor and the widow and the foreigner and the fatherless to come, of which Ruth was all of those. And so we see that that's what she decides to do. And this was, a, this was an honest and a dignifying way to honor the poor, to basically give them a, a job to allow them to take care of themselves and their family. It wasn't gonna bring, you know, they weren't gonna be super wealthy doing this, but it would be enough. It would be enough for them to survive and and take care of their basic needs. So that's exactly what happens. In verse three, we read this. So she went out. That's Ruth we're talking about here. Ruth went out. She entered a field and began to glean behind the harvesters. And as it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. And just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. He said, the Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. Now, here we meet Boaz. And what do we notice about Boaz at first? He greets his workers, his employees, and he doesn't say, hey, good morning. He says, the Lord bless you. The Lord bless you. And how do they respond? They respond kind of in return that the Lord bless you as well. And so we see here, that Boaz was a man following after God. That while many of the other people living in Israel were doing whatever they wanted at this time, and he wasn't, that he was following God. And not only that, that he was leading his employees as well to follow God. We see that he is a a man of godly character right off the bat. But going back to verse three, and I, I love what the author does here. He says this, as it turned out, as it turned out. Literally, that, the, the phrase says, as chance, chance. Now, that seems odd to us, but we might say, as luck would have it, Ruth randomly ends up in Boaz's field. And just then, in verse four, just then, Boaz happens to show up to check on this one particular field. To see what the author's doing here, he's, he's winking at us. He's, he's using sarcasm. He's saying, he's saying, well, God isn't, supernaturally appearing in some burning bush like he did to Moses to say, go here and go to this particular field or do this particular thing, you know? And God isn't raining food from heaven, you know, bread from heaven like he did for the Israelites in the wilderness, raining manna from heaven to to care for Ruth and Naomi. He is still very active in this story. He's still very active in this story. So as it turned out, of all the fields... Of all of Bethlehem, Ruth happens to pick the one and start gleaning in one of Boaz's fields, probably and possibly maybe the richest landowner of all of Bethlehem. And just then, who shows up to check on his field with Boaz? Coincidence? No way. No way is this coincidence. This isn't luck or chance. This is God's providence. This is God's providence being enacted in seemingly everyday life. And that's the, this is the first question I think God is inviting us to kind of take from and glean from today and ask him is this, is God, is this a coincidence or is this providence? Is this a coincidence or is this providence? God doesn't always shout from the heavens, I'm here, I'm doing something. It would be nice if he did, but he doesn't always do that. Sometimes an event or a series of events in our lives or it may seem at first like coincidence, but in fact, God is actively maneuvering things in our lives for our good and for his glory. 
Providence is, is, is this, by definition. It's the way that God sustains, cares for, and governs the world so that it moves towards the destiny that he defined at creation. It's the way God sustains, cares for, and governs the world so that it moves towards the destiny he defined at creation. Providence is not the same thing as fate. It's not the same thing as fate. Fate is this idea that no matter what I do or don't do, the universe is gonna make it all work out the same way no matter what, that I have no say in it. No, that's not, that's not what providence is. Providence, biblical godly providence, is this idea that God is actively working in our lives and in all of creation and that he's inviting us to participate in that or not. He's inviting us to acknowledge his activity or not. Sometimes we have a chance encounter with a stranger or we, have a chance, or we run into an old friend and we think, was that just coincidence? Well, maybe not. Maybe God is doing something. You might look over a series of events in your life recently that's happened and wonder, God, was that just coincidence or are you, is that your providence? Are your fingerprints all over that? Like my, you know, the fingerprints of my kids all over the back of my bumper of my car that say, wash me, right? Well, hey, it rained. I'm good now, right? I don't have to do that anymore. But, um, you know, God, are you active? David Platt, a pastor and author, when talking about this exact verse in Ruth said this. He said this, nothing happens by accident in the economy of God. Everything happens by appointment. We are not driven or caught up in some blind and personal force or chance or coincidence that there is a sovereign God who is always orchestrating the events of his people for their good and his glory. Do you have any as-it-turned-out stories in your life like Ruth and Boaz? Stories where God has been clearly orchestrating some things beyond just coincidence? My, um, my son, Caleb, uh, had a birthday this week, and it was reminding me of uh, a few years back when he was turning three, uh, another, when his, his birthday that time, my um, wife and I wanted to, well, she wanted to get him this gift. We, she wanted to get him this little, like, plastic toddler slide, not a big one, just kind of a little small one that he could go up and down. It had a little basketball hoop on it, and uh, my wife's a gift giver. Like, she loves to that's one of her love languages. She loves to just be generous. And I'm kind of not, to be honest. I'm kind of the opposite. I'm kind of, I can be a little stingy at times. But she had found that Toys R Us, uh, that she had a coupon and everything for this little toddler slide. So one day, Sunday after church, we decide we're going to drive down to Polaris. We're going to go pick up this slide. And we get there. And apparently, every other parent of every other three-year-old had the same coupon because it was all sold out. But of course... They had plenty of other toddler slides that were twice as expensive that you could buy. And so my wife, being generous, she wanted to do it. And we were at the time on one income and didn't really have any, any extra money at all. And, and I was not very polite, I know, and not very, I was pretty insensitive, to be honest. And I just said, no way. And we just got in this big fight in Toys R Us and we left with nothing, nothing for our son's birthday. And the entire drive home was so awkward and quiet. Like, we didn't talk at all. And, uh, but as it turned out, um, as we were going home and I was frustrated, I got stopped at this red light that I would normally wait for. But because of my frustration, I decided I was going to turn right and come into our neighborhood from the longer back way. 
And as it turned out, I drove down our road from a way I never drive down. And as it turned out, when I turned on our street, in front of a house on the curb, was the exact same toddler slide with silly basketball hoop that we went to go by. The exact same model, same color, same everything. It was the exact same one, and it had a sign on it that said, free. And as it turned out, my brakes worked really well. I slammed on those brakes way faster than I needed to. And if my wife and I weren't talking before, we definitely weren't talking now. Because we were just mouths wide open, could not believe it. In shock. The thing that we had gone to get, that we probably couldn't afford, that God had given it to us for free. And it was pouring rain at the time, kind of like a morning like we had this morning, just pouring rain. And I didn't care. I thought that, to me, that thing was like a pot of gold. I was like, if anybody's out, everybody's going to try to take this slide, you know? (laughs) So I jumped out of the car. You know, I told, I yelled to Sarah, slide over, drive home. I'm taking this bad boy home. I carried it in the pouring rain the whole way home on the road. (laughs) I put it in the garage. I closed the door. Did anybody see? Is anybody going to try to break in and take this? No, everybody else would have thought I was crazy, I'm sure. But to us, this was a gift from God. And if you wonder if our son, like, enjoyed this slide, go ahead and put up that first picture. How about the next one? Yeah, we used to, we'd put it in a baby pool and let him go down. He loved it. It brought him so much joy for so many years. Like, he loved it. And as it turns out, as it turns out, God is sovereign. As it turns out that God is sovereign, and if God is sovereign over a little plastic toddler slide with a basketball hoop, then what part of my life and your life is he not sovereign over? If he cares about the little things like that, how much more does he care about the big things of our lives? The no, not one detail gets missed by God. If, if Naomi and Ruth would have showed up a few days later, they would have missed the barley harvest. If Ruth would have arrived in a different field owned by somebody else, she may have not been treated kindly, as we'll see here in a little bit, and been allowed to glean at all. But none of those things were by chance. They were masterfully being orchestrated by God. I bet if you were to think about it, you could look back and tell some amazing, as it turned out, kind of stories too. Where God has done things and moved in your life in ways And wherever you're at today, if if you sense God is active in your life or not, I promise you this, that he is not far from you. And that his fingerprints are all over your lives, whether you notice it or not. Let's keep going. Verse five. Boaz asked asked the overseer of his harvesters, who does that young woman belong to? And the overseer replied, she is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning until now, except for a short rest in the shelter. Now, Boaz immediately notices this new uh, young woman in the fields, and he asked the overseer, who is that? Who is that? And, And traditionally, a lot of people have taken this story at this point and really romanticized it from this point on. And I'm not sure if that's exactly what's intended here, but I think if Hollywood got a hold of this story and had some creative licensing here, this is where the story would go in slow motion, right? And 
and Boaz would be this wealthy, handsome, prince charming bachelor, you know, and he would look over his fields of grain just blowing slowly, and he would see this beautiful, exotic young woman, and he would elbow his wingman, you know, the overseer, and say, who is that babe, you know? But I don't think that's what's happening at all in the story, actually. I don't think that's what's happening at all. I think Boaz knows his employees. He's actively involved in his businesses. He knows his employees, and he knows them well. And he looks out, and he sees this woman, and he says, who does she belong to? Meaning, who is her family? What is, where, what, what's her clan? What's her character like? It's not probably very likely that Ruth was looking her best. I mean, she was not all dolled up. She was probably sweaty, dirty, stinky. You know, harvesting grain with your bare hands when you have nothing is, is not easy work. It's, it's not fun work. It's, she probably had blisters on her hands, cracked hands, bleeding hands. You know, she's, she's arrived in Bethlehem with nothing. You know, she's, she's probably not looking her best. And yet we see that, that Boaz, we're going to see here in a second, does something really unexpected when he finds out who she is. He does this, verse 8, it says this. So Boaz goes out to Ruth. He goes right out to her and he speaks to her. He says to this, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in any other field and don't go away from here. Stay here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and drink, a, drink, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. Now, first off here, we see he calls her my daughter. He says, my daughter, again, he could, uh, you know, use some sort of, you know, derogatory Moabite slur. He could make a move on her. He could do different things. But no, he calls her my daughter a sign of endearment, a sign of respect, a sign of family. You know, and he says this, he says, don't go anywhere else, stay here. Literally in the Hebrew, it's the same word that Ruth told Naomi in chapter one, that I will stay here with you, Naomi, no matter where you go. It's the same word that we read in Genesis One, when it says a husband will leave his father and his mother and stay or cling to his wife. There is a a permanency about this, a, 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 a very seriousness about this. And he's saying, basically, I want to hire you on the spot. I want to protect you and provide for you. I want to make sure that none of the men harass you or take advantage of you. And, and you, can, you can go and get water from the jars the men have filled, which, by the way, is, whew, that's super countercultural, that the men are filling the water jars for the women, not the women filling it for the men. That's radical. Again, talking about Boaz, a man after God's own heart. And he says, but stay here, stay here. And this brings up the next question that I think God is inviting us to ask today. It's a great question that we should wrestle with regularly, and the question is this, God Should I stay or should I go? Should I stay or should I go? And I know what some of you are thinking right now. Did he just quote the clash? Yes, I did. Yes, I did. For some, if you're younger than me and you're thinking, I don't know what he's talking about, and you like rock music, you need to check out the clash. That's great. No, but I'm I'm pretty sure that's where the 
clashes biblical theological you know, expertise, it ends right there. But, um, but it's a great question we should ask God. God, are you calling me to go or to stay? And are you calling me to stay like Boaz tells Ruth? Or should I go like Ruth in chapter one knew she should go? That God was calling her to go with Naomi, to leave her homeland, to go to Bethlehem, a country and a place she's never been before. But in this chapter, God is calling her to stay, to stay here. Oftentimes, we get inspired when we hear stories of people going off and doing great things, right? You know, you hear a story of God calling somebody to go be a missionary on the other side of the world. Or we hear stories of God calling people to start a new business adventure, and and we think, that's amazing. And our God is ascending God. He does tell people to go all the time. We read stories in the Bible where God tells people to go all the time. Abraham, I want you to leave your homeland and go to a new country. You don't even know where you're going yet, and I'm going to make you into a great nation, the nation of Israel. We love stories like that. But sometimes, God tells us to stay, and we don't talk about that that much. Years ago, I learned the power of, of being obedient when God called me to stay. I was, um, uh, many of you know my story, uh, for years, for a dozen years, I, I was a public school teacher. And a couple years into teaching, I was teaching in a district um, about 45 minutes away from here. And I thought, wouldn't it be great to teach in a district that my kids go to? Or teach in a district that's not as far of a drive or closer? Or teach in a district that maybe I'd make a little bit more money. That'd be nice. And so I was applying for jobs, and, and I had a few years of good experience, and um, I had great references, and I had great test scores. My students' test scores were some of the best in the district, and I thought, this is great. And, and so for a couple years, I applied for different jobs in there, and I, I never once did I get a phone call, an email, or an interview of any kind. It seemed just like God was saying, nope, you are staying here. You are staying exactly in this district. That's where I've called you to at this point of time. And now looking back, a number of years later, eventually I got that hint, I stopped applying. And looking back, I see that God used me in huge ways in that district. That God blessed me, that God fed me, that God took care of me in that district, that God um, allowed me to speak into a lot of people's lives. He gave me a lot of influence in my years there. Sometimes God calls us to stay, to stay exactly where we're at. Or sometimes he calls us to go, but just not yet. And we want to kind of force it and make it happen before God is, is behind it. We love stories. We get excited when we hear stories of, did you hear what so-and-so is doing? Man, I wish I could do something like that. But sometimes God calls us to stay. Sometimes God calls us to stay in a job like me, like me that maybe uh, wasn't paying as much as you hoped it would pay. Or maybe your job isn't as exciting as you'd like it to be. But you sense God is saying, nope, this is where I have you. And you don't know why yet, but it's where I have you. Sometimes, really almost all the time, with very, very few exceptions, God calls us to stay in our marriages. Even in difficult seasons. Even when it doesn't feel like there's a lot of hope. Sometimes we get bored with church. And we think, man, that Andrew, he has the same corny jokes every sermon. I'm just so sick and tired. But maybe God is calling you to stay, to plant roots, to not go from church to church to church to church, but to set roots, to, to get invested. Maybe, maybe God is calling you to stay in one particular field and glean from that field. 
Maybe that's where he's calling you to be protected and provided for. Some of you today might be wrestling with this question. Maybe there's an area of your life where you're wondering, you know, what am I supposed to do in this area? You know, and if God is, is making it really clear to go and you're getting wise counsel from a few trusted friends, then, then by all means, go. Be blessed. May God's favor be with you and what you're called to do. But, but maybe ask yourself this, am I forcing something that God isn't really behind? You know, am I trying to make something happen because I just want it so bad and God isn't, is saying, maybe not yet. Or maybe that's not going to be as good as you think it is. And God might be calling you to stay. You know, if you're wondering, how do I grow in knowing that? How do I know if God's calling me to stay or go? Or is this coincidence or God's providence? Now, I'd encourage you to do two things. I'd encourage you to, one, to get prayer at the end of the service today. Get prayer that God would teach you and show you how to hear his voice. And then the second thing I would do is I would encourage you to sign up for the, one of our equip classes we're having Tuesday night on your Connect card. One of them is called Hearing God's Voice. It's going to talk about real practical ways of how you grow in that. It's always a good thing, to, to, a skill set to have and to know. But whether God is calling you to go or stay, I know one thing is always true, and that's this, that God will always call you to stay with him. That you are always called to stay with him. That, that's essentially what Boaz is telling Ruth. He's saying, cling to me, not in this romantic sense, but in a provider, protector sense. That I want you to stay here and stay beside me always. We are never meant to grow or mature to a point where we no longer need God, where we can do it on our own, where we aren't dependent on him. The more and more I walk with God and the longer I know God, the more and more I realize how much I desperately need him every day. And becoming more and more aware of that is so critical as we grow in following him. So why does, why does Boaz do this? Why does Boaz tell Ruth not to leave his field? Imagine this is a total stranger to her. She's out here gleaning in the fields and all of a sudden this man walks up and talks to her and basically says all this to her. No doubt she's in shock and kind of what are your intentions and you know, what are you doing and why are you saying this? So uh, verse 10, at this Ruth bowed down with her face to the ground and she asked him, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? And Boaz replied, I've been told about all about what you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband and how you left your father and mother in your homeland and you came to live with the people that you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you've done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Apparently, the story of Ruth is all over the Bethlehem social media pages. Everybody is talking about her and Naomi, and Boaz has heard about her kindness, and he wants to extend that kindness and then some to her. Verse 13, it says this, because it gets even better. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have the st even have the standing of one of your servants. Verse 14, at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here, have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all that she wanted and had some left over. And as she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men, let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Even pull out some of the stalks from her bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. 
You know, this might be the first meal that Ruth has had in days, when it weeks even. First filling meal. And she's not known this at all since she's arrived in Bethlehem and she's, she's dipping this bread and this wine and he's offering this roasted grain. And I always think, like, if you ever go to a restaurant and you're like really hungry when you arrive and then you have to wait like an hour to get a table and all you do is smell that good food, right? And then they bring you like good bread. Well, it doesn't, maybe it's not even good. It could be like three days old, but it tastes so good. You know what I'm talking about? Because it's, you're just so hungry. Like I imagine that's kind of what, what Ruth is experiencing here. And she eats so much. She eats so much that she's, she, she has stuff left over. She's got a to-go box, right? And uh, not only that, not only is she being fed, but she's experiencing fellowship. She doesn't have to eat away from everybody else. Like, a, like somebody who was a, a foreigner might have to do. She's welcome into the group. Not only that, Boaz comes, he says, come here. He's sitting beside her and he's offering her, he's offering her this food. And again, he's serving her. The master is serving someone who's lower than a servant. So radical. And, it, and the, uh, this word offered in the Hebrew is a little tricky because it's not found in the scriptures very often, but I love what the, the new revised standard version says. It doesn't say offered, it says he heaped up food for her. Basically, he piled it on so much, knowing that she needed everything she could get. That, that be, she, he was extravagant. In verse 15 and 16, we see that after the lunch meal, Ruth doesn't quit. She goes back to work. And Boaz orders all of his men not to bother her. In fact, he says, I want you to intentionally pull out stalks and drop them for her so that she can gather them up. Verse 17, it says this, so Ruth gleaned in the field until evening, and then she threshed the barley that she had gathered, and it amounted to an amount about an ephah. Now, an ephah is not a term we use in amounts anymore today, but it it's around over 30 pounds, maybe 30 to 50 pounds of grain. And just so you know, that's roughly about 15 times what a typical harvester would get paid for one day's worth of work. 15 times. He goes above and beyond being generous. Verse 18, she carried it back to town, and her mother-in-law, Naomi, who's been waiting all day, hoping that maybe Ruth would just come back with a few grains to make some sort of a meal out of it, saw how much that she gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over. She reaches in her back row pocket and pulls out her to-go box, right? And says, not only do I have all this, I got this too, right? And, uh, and, and so over after she had eaten enough, and her mother-in-law asked this, he said, she said this, where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. And then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. Naomi's been wondering, worrying about her daughter-in-law all day long. Wondering, is she being treated poorly? Is she having rocks thrown at her? Is she being called you know, horrible things? And she, she comes back to find out that, that no, none of that was happening. That in fact, the, the extreme opposite was happening. And we, and we start to see that Naomi, who in chapter one was bitter and depressed and felt hopeless, that there is this glimmer of hope, that there's this giddiness in her, that, that, that she maybe hasn't missed out on the blessing of God. That could it be, could it be that in the bad times and the bitter times, that God has been orchestrating a blessed time to come. 
That could it be that in your and my times of suffering, that God is sovereignly maneuvering things for our satisfaction? That could it be, could it be that at our low points that God has not left us or that in our junk that God has joy for us around the corner? Could it be that if you feel forgotten today, that God, in fact, has not forgotten you? That God is, in fact, fighting on behalf for you in the background? Could it be? Could it be something has begun to change in Naomi? The excitement in her and the hopefulness in her is starting to come back up. God's redeeming love for her is starting to be revealed. And then it ends like this. It ends like this in verse 20 through 23. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. And she added this. That man is actually our close relative. He's one of our guardian redeemers. And if you have a Bible or, you know, I would highlight that or underline that phrase. Your Bible might say kinsman redeemer, but that phrase is going to be super critical in, in the coming weeks to come. And um, wish we had time to go into it today, but we don't. But verse 21, and then it says, then Ruth, the Moabite said, he even said to me, stay with my workers until they've finished harvesting all my grain. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it would be good for you, my daughter, to go with the women who worked for him, because in someone else's field, you might be harmed. So Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean until the barley and the wheat harvest were finished. And she lived with her mother-in-law. And so the chapters that started at the beginning of the harvest season ends at the end of the harvest season and we are left with that nagging ending of to be continued. What is gonna come next? What is gonna come next? But there's one more question that I think God is inviting us to ask him today. And this one more question has really been embedded all throughout this whole chapter. And we've seen Boaz enacting it all throughout the chapter. And this is the question, God, are the edges of my field wide enough? God, are the edges of my field wide enough? And I'll explain what I mean by that. Do you remember at the beginning when we talked about how in the Old Testament there was a a law that said, if you're a harvester, you're not supposed to glean the edges of your field. You're supposed to leave you're supposed to leave, or you're not supposed to harvest the edges of the field. You're supposed to leave the edges for the poor and the foreigner and the widow to come and get food from. But nowhere in Scripture does God say how wide the edges are supposed to be. Nowhere does he say that. He allows us to reflect on that and to think about, well, how, how much are you calling me to leave of an edge, God? How much are you calling me? And Boaz extravagantly, pretty much got rid of the edges altogether. (laughs) He said to Ruth, you have complete access to my whole field. Have as much as you want. And oftentimes, you know, we're not, most of us aren't farmers in ancient Israel, you know, you know, thinking about this, you know, idea. But we've all been given a field. We've all been given a field. We've all been given a certain amount of time, a certain amount of energy, a certain amount of income, We've all been given an area of influence in our life. God has given us all a field. And oftentimes we just say, God, if you just gave me a bigger field, then, I could, then I'd be happy to make my edges bigger. But sometimes God says, no, I want you to be grateful for the field you have. And I want you to consider, are you being very generous with the margins, with the edges? If we find our edges to be narrow, then it might be 
an indication that maybe we've grown a little selfish, a little cynical maybe. I want to end with this story real quick here. I last, uh, a couple weeks ago, I was down in Columbus area having lunch with a, a friend, uh, somebody from this church. One of the fun parts of my job is getting to have lunch appointments with people and hear how they're doing and talk about their lives and what God's doing in their lives. And, and after lunch, I pulled up to a red light. Apparently a lot of red lights in this sermon today. But I pulled up to this red light and there was a woman standing at the corner with a sign that basically said, help. I need help financially. I need help. And, uh, and I was already late for the next two things I was supposed to do. And I didn't really have anything to give her. And so I'm, well, I will say this. I did the thing that I don't, maybe you've done this before. I just decided, you know what? I'm just going to not make eye contact. If I just don't make eye contact, then it's like she can't see me, right? And the light turned green and I left. And I went down the road and I had to run an errand to Home Depot. I was buying something for our kids' conference when we had the all-church conference for a, uh, the other couple weeks ago um, for a craft that they were going to do. And as I was leaving Home Depot, I just had this strong sense of this picture of this woman in my mind. And I started thinking these kinds of questions. God, were you doing something there? God, are you calling me to go back to her? God, I'm already late. <laughs> like, I'm already late for the next thing. But I've had this sense of God was saying, no, I want you to, I want you to go back. I want you to go back. And so I, I went back. It was out of my way. I pulled back around, and I, and I parked, and I thought, maybe she's not here anymore. You know, at least then I would think, God, I tried, right? Maybe she's gone. But, but they, I looked around the corner, and there she was. I thought, okay, God, help me know what to say or do. What do you want me to do? I don't like talking to strangers. It's funny. I don't mind standing up here talking to all of you in a big group, but I like talking to strangers. And so I walked up to her and said, hey, my name's Andrew. And I asked her name, and she told me her name. And I said, hey, I, don't, I actually drove by a while ago, and I just felt you know, like compelled to come back and talk to you and hear your story. And so she told me your story, and she told me you know, like what had been going on in her life. Her mom had been real sick, uh, and how... She had, was struggling with work. She just got a new job but hadn't gotten paid yet. They were about to get evicted. She had two teenage kids. And, and I don't know if she was just telling me what she thought I wanted to hear or if she was telling me the truth, but I had all this com- so much compassion for her. I felt the love of God for her. And so I, I said, hey, I don't know what I, I don't have a lot to give, but I actually, hey, I, I don't know if you have a card, but I pulled out these like invite cards that we have that you can grab as you're walking out the door. And I wrote down the times of our food pantry and medical clinic. And I said, I, do you have access to a car? Or can you borrow a car? And she said, yeah, I do. I said, well, hey, why don't you come up, why don't you come up this week to our, free, to our food pantry? And she saw on the car, she saw, she saw it was the vineyard. She started to cry. And she said, she said, the vineyard? I said, yeah, yeah, the vineyard. And she said, when I was a little girl, my mom, used to t- my mom who's sick used to take me to Vineyard Columbus every weekend. I grew up going to that church. And as an adult, I kind of left going to church, and, and I never got involved in a small group of any kind, and now I'm going through this really hard season, and nobody in that church knows I'm going through this. And it was like God used me like Boaz to say, hey, come glean in our field. Come glean in this field, the VCDC. Come be a part of our church. Come to our weekend services. Get fed physically. Get fed spiritually. Get fed relationally. Get connected to people walk through life with people. Our, our edges of our field are wide here and we want to continue to make them wider. What if God is calling us to be aware of areas where maybe he's asking us to be a little bit more generous with our time, to go out of our way every once in a while, maybe financially, maybe with our talents or whatever it is. 
God, you've given us fields that you've blessed us with. Are we being generous and letting others glean from those fields? You know, those of us who God has shown extravagant kindness to, we are called to extend that extravagant kindness to others. Those of us who we have experienced the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ, we are called to extend the mercy and Jesus Christ, of Jesus Christ to others. And those of us who've even got a taste, a taste of the redeeming love of God, we are called to, to share that redeeming love of God with others. Amen? Amen. Why don't we stand up here? Hey, at the end of our services, if you're visiting maybe for the first time, uh, we always like to give a little bit of space before we end as a time to respond, to respond to what God is doing. Maybe God is encouraging you in some way or challenging you in some way. And today we talked about these three questions. And I know for some of you, some of you are wrestling with these three questions right now. That there are things going on in your life that you're trying to figure out, God, what are you calling me to do? I just want to encourage you in any way, if any of those are true, to come forward and get prayer this morning. Um, and, and maybe you, maybe you um, realize too, like as I was talking, um, that you have an as it turned out kind of story that you've never really given God credit for. And, and just as a sign of giving God credit, maybe just come forward and maybe share that story with somebody and just have somebody pray for you and bless that. Some of you, I think God is, is calling, you're wrestling with God, should I stay or go? And somebody's gonna pray for you today and they're not gonna give you advice, oh, you should stay, oh, you should go. No, they're just gonna pray that God would show you, that God would show you where he's put you and if he's called you to stay or go. And some of us, I think God, are, we're feeling that, awk, that uncomfortableness of knowing like, God, I have been a little selfish or I have been a little stingy and God, you are calling me to be more generous with the field you've given me. So if any of those things apply, I would encourage you to come forward and get prayer. And then a couple other things. We always like to pray for um, you know, healing or if, you need, if you're sick with anything. I had a sense of just like if you have really bad acid reflux, really bad heartburn, it's not just like you ate something bad this morning for breakfast, but it's like a regular habitual thing and it's really affecting your life and how you go about life. I would encourage you to get prayer for that. And then I, I also saw some, a picture in my mind last night of uh, someone just sneezing over and over and over again. Uncontrollably, I had a sense of just that God was uh, wanting to do some stuff with those of you who really struggle with allergies during this season. And I know you can take a pill or whatever and feel better, but wouldn't it be cool if, if you came forward and got prayer and God did it, turn that into an as it turned out story? Whereas as it turns out, I got prayer and, and all of a sudden my allergies weren't nearly as bad as they used to be or they've gone away. So if any of that stuff applies, just go ahead and make your way forward and guys pray for guys and gals pray for gals and then I'll come up and close this out here in a second.